Genesis chapter 47, we've already uh, read through it, obviously starting in verse 13. Uh, coming off the message from last week, where we, <laughs> where we went a, a, a chapter and a half, 46 through uh, verse 12 and 47. And as you, I don't know about you, but as, you, as we read through this passage, um, what, what thoughts kind of came to your mind? Did you kind of, did you kind of wonder where in the world we we're going to go with this this evening? <laughs> you know, I mean, because Joseph is, is kind of the main character here in this section of scripture. And, and really what we see is what could be described perhaps as um, shrewd accounting measures. You know, it seems like it's just kind of a, a, a little back and forth and process here with with Joseph and this and these people. And you know, in, in some ways, I don't know about you, but in some ways, you kind of look at it and you maybe feel like he's kind of taking advantage of them. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm not. I don't know if anybody's kind of getting that feeling. But um, but this evening, we want to we want to be careful again not to focus too much on the people and focus rather on what God is doing in this passage. And, and you may be looking at this passage going, well, <laughs> this is another one of those narrative passages where it's like, I don't, I mean, obviously we know God is there, but you know, it doesn't really talk about anything that he's doing. How do we, you know, how do we go about doing that? And, um, and so I think in order for us to do that, one of the nice things is we have the benefit of, of hindsight, right? We have the benefit of having all of this written out for us in Scripture. We have not just Genesis, but we have Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and everything else afterwards in the Bible. I'm not going to quote them all. Yes, I know them. Uh, but we have, we have the whole Scripture that we can look back on and we can learn, even from a passage like this, maybe something that... Uh, that Back when it was happening, they didn't really know what was going on. All, all they saw was what probably seemed like should have been a fairly common uh, process, right? What are we seeing here? We're seeing uh, transactions being made. We're seeing goods being sold for something else, right? And so it, it's easy for us to maybe get caught up in, in the natural things of what's going on and miss the supernatural of what's going on. And so the title of my message this evening is Finding the Super in the Natural. Finding the Super in the Natural. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but one of my favorite comic characters um, from the DC universe is uh, Superman, right? I know everybody's probably a Batman fan. They all hate Superman because he's just too powerful, right? He has all these really cool things. But I, one of the things that I've always found interesting about Superman, I'm going to have to walk, stay over here because that keeps coming out. That's weird. One of the interesting things I, I've always found about Superman is he doesn't disguise himself. Have you noticed that? I mean, you've got all these other characters. They're all wearing a mask of some sort. Now, I mean, usually, you, I don't know about you, but growing up, I used to look at those masks and think, I mean, really... Can you really not tell who's under the mask? I mean, really? But, I mean, over the last, you know, six, eight months, I think we've realized, no, you can't. You can't tell who's under that mask, <laughs> right? Uh, so masks are pretty effective, uh, apparently, for superheroes. But here you have Superman, right? And he's, he's maskless, you know? He's just this 
bold-faced person, right? And he's he's doing all of his things, you know, and, and everybody can see his face, and that's it's that is just who he is. But the person wearing the mask is his alter ego, which is Clark Kent. See, I knew. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about. But really, let me ask you this: Do you know who I am? How about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but this this is not much of a mask. <laughs> you know? And the thing that's really, you know, kind of thrown me off about Superman is how in the world do people not know that Clark Kent is Kent is Superman? You know, it's not like we're gonna lose something here in a second. I don't know Everyone close your eyes. Listen to the waves. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but I mean, how how can you not know it's Superman, right? It's not like it's not like when he. He really does not like being over there. It's not like when he um, when he's Clark Kent, he somehow loses all of his muscles, right? Yeah, he's he's still the same height. He's still the same build. And really, the difference between him, instead of wearing a red and blue outfit, he's wearing a suit and glasses. And maybe a hat, depending on which comic you're looking at, right? I mean, that's not much of a disguise. And, and you just kind of wonder, how can people not see that he's Superman, right? How can people not see that he's Superman? Well, I kind of look at this passage, and, you know, this, this passage is a little bit more like Batman, you know? The mask is, is on pretty good. It's hard to tell sometimes what God is doing until we look at the rest of the story. Until we see, until we go back, one of the things we talked about last week was remembering the faithfulness of God. And so as we read this passage, the way that we can see what God is doing is we can look even forward in the Bible and see what he has done. We can see the faithfulness of God even through this process here. So that's my goal this evening. As we go through this passage, yeah, maybe a little bit shorter, hopefully, for even the, the long one recently, but, um, but my goal is for us to see not just a, a shrewd business deal on behalf of uh, Pharaoh done by Joseph. Yes, there's, there's a lot of things going on here from a business standpoint, from a, from a, uh, a nationality standpoint. There's a lot of interesting things going on here. But there's more going on than meets the eye, right? There's, there's somebody who's working through all of these uh, interactions here to perform his perfect will, and that is God. And so as we look at what looks like a natural uh, progression of business, I want us to see the supernatural this evening. Look past the mask and see the hero. And that hero is God. So as we look at this passage this evening, we see um, several circumstances, and then we see human responses. But all those circumstances and responses really are God's way of working out his sovereign plan. In fact, that's the, that's the big idea this evening. The big idea is God often uses natural circumstances and human responses to bring about his sovereign plan. God often uses natural circumstances and human responses to bring about his sovereign plan. Now, obviously, we have a very big circumstance, right? 
what's the circumstance that we find ourselves in almost virtually globally at this point? Famine, right? There's famine going on. In fact, it specifically mentions famine in the land of Egypt and famine in the land of Canaan. I'm, I'm going to move this over here so I feel like I'm walking on the right side. There we go. So we've got famine pretty much in most of the known world from what we can tell. This famine is, is all over the place. And it's, it's expressly mentioned in Canaan and mentioned in Egypt. And so we have famine. That's a circumstance. Now, this was not a, a, a common circumstance necessarily, right? God brought this on specifically. He did this. In fact, he, he promised that it was going to happen. He gave seven years of preparation time, and there were seven years of famine. And this was a terrible famine, probably the worst famine the world had, had ever seen. I mean, this was a famine that was driving people from the far reaches into Egypt, the only place that had any forewarning that this was going to happen, who was able to prepare through Joseph and, and the plan that, that God gave him to institute. And so everybody is coming to this land. And even though this is not a natural circumstance, this is, this is one that God brought, it, it is a circumstance that we find ourselves in. And it's one we found ourselves in for several chapters. You know, we're, we're not new to this circumstance. But as, as we open up, it just reminds us that there is a, there's no food in all the land, right? And it says that there was, because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. If, I don't know if you remember when we were preaching on, uh, on the, the brothers and the father, and the father looked at the brothers and was like, what are you guys going to do? Right, because there's nothing. You need to do something. There, there was nothing. There was nothing anywhere. And it's interesting. There's not really a great um, consensus on how far into the famine we are uh, when it comes to commentaries. I've read several different commentaries. There's not. There's not anything really clear like how far in. Obviously, we're we're some ways in because we know that at this point, Joseph Joseph's brothers have come down twice. Right? Well, three times, actually. They came down the first time, and they left Simeon, they went back, and they came down the second time, and they started getting back, and then, you know, they had a little stuff with, Joe, with Benjamin, and then, of course, they come down the third time last week. We talked about them coming down and settling in the land of Goshen, and that's, that takes time, right? So there's, it's been probably, by my guesstimation, probably at least a year, maybe even two years in. And we've got all these people have been coming and they've been buying the grain. The people of Egypt have been coming and buying the grain. And this was, this was how Joseph had planned it out. He had, he had all these stores that were, that were ready. And so we have this global famine. And God had, had allowed Joseph to lead the response of saving for seven years and then to be able to sell those goods to the people. You know, it's interesting after this time, Egypt basically becomes the wealthiest, greatest nation in that world, right? And, and we're going to get to that a little bit later, but just keep, store that in the back of your mind. So you've got all these people who are coming to Egypt buying food. And, and I think Joseph was probably fair, you know, when he was selling food. But, but the entire world, roughly, is coming to Egypt and paying for
for the grain that they have. That's a lot of money. And so we come to the next circumstance that we see here. It says, uh, verse 14, that he gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So I think one of the things that we want to, to make sure we understand is Joseph is not just being this greedy guy, right? He's not storing up money for himself, right? He's not, he's not, he's not Zacchaeus, right? You know, you guys remember the story of Zacchaeus. He, he was somebody who would steal, he was collecting taxes that were owed and he would add to that and collect extra taxes for himself, you know, it was, it was just kind of common practice. This is not what Joseph's doing. He's not doing anything to benefit himself. He's doing what Pharaoh has commanded him to do. And he's doing everything that he's doing on behalf of not himself, but on behalf of his employer, Pharaoh. Yes, he is very powerful. He's second in command. He's been able to bring his family into the land of Goshen. And from what we can tell in this passage, everything that goes on in this passage doesn't seem to affect the Israelites at all. Did you notice that? There's no mention of the Israelites being a part of these transactions. Well, and, and the reason why I don't think they were is because what, was, what happened right before this? You remember right before this in verse uh, 12, it said, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So Joseph was taking care of his family. They were, they were separated, they were protected in the land of Goshen, and he was taking care of them. He was providing the needs that they had. But everybody else had to pay, right? That's, that's kind of a big, that's a good game if you're an Israelite. <laughs> you know, here, here you are suffering up in Canaan, and you finally, you know, this whole process that has happened, you realize your brother's still alive, and not only that, he's second in command of all of Egypt. I mean, there was some fear and trepidation, but I would think by now, they're settling the land of Goshen. It probably felt pretty good to have all your needs taken care of. It seems like everything that they needed was taken care of. And they're not even really involved in this, in this section of, of negotiation. But we come to the point here where the famine is continuing to go. And all the money, did you notice what it said? All the money in the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt he had, he had bought in with his grain, right? So every, every red cent is gone. It's all in the coffers of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is literally the richest person on the planet. I mean, he has, he has everybody's money. He is the U.S. Mint, all right? He can do whatever he wants. He's got, he's got all the cash. And so here we have the people realizing that there's no money, in verse 15, it says, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. All right, so here's our, here's our, excuse me, our next circumstance. We've got this, this famine going on, but then now all the money is gone. He's drained them dry. There is, there's no more cash. And we're still in the middle of this famine. And, and we don't know, they, I don't know, I mean, Joseph knew it was going to be seven years. I don't know if he communicated that. I, I would think that he did, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But we don't know. Obviously, we're dealing with at least two years of time in this span 
as we read through this passage. So there's at least two years, maybe three or four years. So maybe we're three years in. I don't know. But we know that there's no more food. Whatever people had bought is eaten. It's used up. And there's no more money. And so the people of Egypt, notice it's just the people of Egypt. I think this is interesting. It doesn't mention anything about the people of Canaan. I don't know what they did. The Bible doesn't tell us. Obviously, they were still there when the Israelites came out uh, of Egypt 400 years later. I don't, I don't know how they survived, but you know, God allowed them to survive somehow. But here we have the people of Egypt coming to Joseph, and they say, we're dying. We're going to die. We need food. And, and they're almost like looking at him like, really? You're going to let us die? I mean, that's kind of the, the, the attitude that they have before him. You know, we, give us food because we're going to die. You're, you're going to let us die right here in front of you? And uh, because we don't have any cash. You, you took all of our money. And we need food. And so what does Joseph say? What? He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Sell me your livestock for the grave. Sell me your livestock for the grain. And so they do, right? They, they start selling off all their herds, not to Joseph, but to whom? To Pharaoh, right? So they start selling off all these, all these livestock to Pharaoh. And, and, you know, I don't, again, I don't know the value of these things, you know, livestock versus grain. I would think livestock would be pretty valuable when it comes to grain, uh, maybe not at that point with a famine. I don't know. I don't know how it worked out. The Bible doesn't tell us, you know, what the what the cost was for each and how everything worked. But what we do know is they sold all of it, right? They sold all of it. Every animal that was owned by people in Egypt was sold to Pharaoh through Joseph for food. Every single one of them. And so here we are, we have Pharaoh, who is now probably the richest man in the entire world. Now he has not only the cattle that he used to have, which we already know he, he had cattle, right? He had livestock before because he, he asked Joseph to put some of his brothers over keeping them, right? If they were good men. And so he had, he had cattle before. He was probably wealthy before, but now he owns all the money and all the cattle. Those are two of the main things that you look at for wealth in the ancient world. All the money and all the cattle. And so here we have Joseph making this deal and Pharaoh is really the recipient. It's not Joseph who's the recipient. Yes, he's able, he's able to protect his, his family, but Joseph's not the one getting rich all, off of all of this. He's not, he's not doing all these investments to, you know, to you know, make, people, you know, make people's lives worse and just you know, to, to make himself rich. That's not his attitude. He's just doing what is right for Pharaoh. And he's doing what's right for the people. And so he's taking in all these things. So everything, almost everything in Egypt is now owned by Pharaoh. All the money, all the livestock. And we come to the next year in verse 18. And when that year was ended, they came to him 
the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. All right, so they come back with with another sob story, right? They come back and they're like, look, you know, here's the deal. You know, this this is just the truth, Joseph. Uh, We're not going to hide it from you. You have all the money, or Pharaoh's got all the money. Pharaoh's got... All the, all the cattle, there's, there's nothing else that we have to barter with so that we can live. And, and they're at their deepest point of desperation. That's the circumstance that we find these people in. And to this point, Joseph has, has been kind of working, he's been working this process out, right? We see Joseph dealing with it by, by, with the famine by selling the food. We see Joseph dealing with the lack of money by selling it for livestock. But it's interesting, as you read this passage, you know, you can, you, if you read through it too quickly, you can really start to look down on Joseph for what's about to happen. Because it seems like Joseph is now going to enslave all of Egypt, right? Joseph's going to enslave all of Egypt. And of course, we look at that and we, and we think slaves, you know, we, we th- Egyptian slaves, we think of Israel in not too, not too distant future, right? That's kind of what we think of when we think of the slaves. And so we can kind of look at this transaction and, and, and really belittle Joseph, and, uh, and really, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, this next part wasn't even Joseph's idea. Did you catch that? This next transaction was not Joseph's idea. The first one was, give me your money, I'll sell you grain. The second one was, give me your livestock, I'll sell you green. But what happened with this one? It says in verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Now this is the Egyptians still talking. Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So they're coming to him, and all they have left is themselves. And it's not Joseph that says, well, I'll tell you what. If you serve me, if you give me your land, and you become Pharaoh's servants, then I'll take care of you. It wasn't wasn't his idea. It was the people. They were so desperate for food that they were willing to become slaves. They were willing to become slaves just to live. And they didn't want just for their lives, but they they didn't want the land to be desolate. Did you notice that? It said not just us, but also the land. Basically, they're saying, look, we, we will give everything to you if you will take care of us. And so Joseph responds in the affirmative, right? He responds by doing what they ask. Verse 20, 
So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had fixed had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, he did not sell. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So everybody in Egypt has basically given everything over to Pharaoh except the priests. Pharaoh now is literally the wealthiest man on the earth. He has all the money. He has hundreds and thousands of livestock. He has all the land of Egypt. He owns everything. And everyone there is in some form or fashion a servant. Now, there's some speculation as to, as to you know, kind of how this process, you know, worked itself out. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail trying to figure that out because, frankly, we don't know. We don't know. But he put them to work. He put them to work. Did you notice that? It says in verse 21, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. The, the kind of another concept of how this is laid out is that he organized them into cities. That's another uh, concept of this translation. And the idea is that he put them to work. He, he had them doing things. Now, was it necessarily, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't sitting in Pharaoh's you know, palace fanning him necessarily. You know, that's, that's kind of what I think of when I think of a servant, right? Especially in, in Egypt, kind of think of somebody standing there with one of those big palms, you know, and just that's all you do all day is fan the Pharaoh. Um, obviously, you can't have, you can't have you know, that many fans, really. Um, so they weren't all just sitting there fanning Pharaoh. But there, were work, there was work that needed to still be, do, be done. And so he put them to work. He gave them what they needed, and he put them to work. Verse 23, and Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought, bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you. You shall sow the land and the harvest. You shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. All right, so what's he saying? He's saying, okay, now you all have been bought by Pharaoh. You are all servants of Pharaoh. And as servants of Pharaoh, I need you to work the land. Isn't that interesting? Here are all these people who had, who had the land before, and now what, is, what does he do? He provides what they need, and he provides extra for them to be able to work the land. So he's got all the money, he's got all the, all the livestock, he's got all the land, but here he's not just taking everything in. Now he's giving back out. Did you notice that? He's giving back out. He's replenishing the land. He's having them work. And he sets up this decree that they're supposed to give one-fifth. Kids, how many, what's the percentage on that? What's one-fifth? 20%, right? 20% of the land, every, anything that they grew was supposed to go back to Pharaoh. All right, so that was kind of their tax. 
That was uh, part of the kind of a fiefdom <laughs> process before the Middle Ages. And so, you know, that was, that was the tax for them to be able to get what Joseph was giving them. So we have all these circumstances and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it seems almost like, you know, Joseph's kind of taking advantage and taking advantage and taking advantage. But there's a reason behind all of this. There's a purpose for all of this. Israel is here and they're, they're sheltered from everything else that is going on, but they're not always going to be. They're not always going to be. And it's interesting, the next kind of circumstance that we see here is that Joseph has saved these people's lives and because he has saved their lives, are they disgruntled by the work that they have to do? Do you see them complaining? Man, you took all of our money, you took all of our livestock. It almost sounds like that earlier, right? It almost sounds like, you know, you did this to us in some way. But really, they're just kind of saying, this, this is where we're at, man. You, you have everything already, you know, so what, what are you going to do? But here at the end of this, it says in verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. See, Joseph is not doing all of these things to be manipulative, to be scheming, to be, uh, to be harsh. He's not doing these things for his own selfish gain. He's doing these things on behalf of Pharaoh, but he's also doing these things on behalf of the people. When they have nothing left, he does what is right for them. And what do they say? You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Of the, the land of the priests alone did he not be, did not become Pharaoh's. So they were happy with Joseph. Now, I look at this situation, and, and I look at all these circumstances that these people are going through, and I look at Joseph, and I, and I see all the different things, and you can see this whole, it's, it's almost like a, a a progressive calculation. You know, it's like, I'm going to take the money and then I'm going to take the livestock and then I'm going to take the land and then I'm going to make them servants. That, that wasn't Joseph's goal. He was just doing the next natural thing that should have been done. And in the end, the next natural thing was what? Take care of the people. Take care of the people and put them to work. And in the end, we have 20% of everything they grow still coming back to Pharaoh, the most wealthy man in the entire world. So we have all of these things that have happened. And at the end of all of this, the people are happy. The people are, ha are happy because they realized that Joseph had not really dealt harshly with them. He had dealt wisely with them. And so the people are rejoicing in what Joseph has done. They're, they're happy with what Joseph has done. And, so, and all of these things have happened for one purpose. Because God has a plan for all that stuff. God has a plan for all that stuff. Egypt now is the wealthiest nation. Pharaoh himself is the wealthiest person on the planet. And there's Israel 
protected and secure right in the middle of it. They didn't lose their money. They didn't lose their livestock. They didn't lose their land. Remember it said they had a possession of the land in Goshen? They didn't lose any of that stuff. They're protected. And you don't, you don't even see the people of Egypt complaining about that, do you? They're not complaining about that because they know that Joseph is doing what is right. And as we look at this, we see all these kind of natural interactions. But what is God doing? What is God doing? Well, we know what's going to happen, right? We know what's going to happen. If you turn over to the book of Exodus, chapter 1, it says in verse 1, these, I'm sorry, verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know whom? Joseph. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So God is using all of these things that Joseph is doing to create a period of time for the Israelites to grow and prosper in a land that had much wealth. Because it's not until a king arises that doesn't know Joseph that things start to turn south, that people start to get scared. You know, the people of Egypt looked at Joseph as their savior. He's the one that rescued them. Even, even after they had to pay out all their money, even after they had to pay out all their livestock, even basically giving themselves as servants, he was still their savior. He rescued them. He kept them alive. He was a hero in Egypt until someone arose that didn't know him, that didn't remember him. And that's when things start to turn south for the children of Israel. But from the time of this passage in chapter 47 to that time in Exodus chapter one, we've got decades of peace and prosperity for the people of Egypt. Decades, probably I would guesstimate about 60 years. We're not 100% sure again where we're at in the timeline, but my guess is probably around 60 years from this passage in chapter 47 till we get to Exodus chapter one, or maybe even later. You know, it's not necessarily, it says that he didn't know it. So this could have been, you know, decades even further in the future for this king to rise. Because when you have, when you have a hero like Joseph, you're probably gonna remember him for a while. After all, he did make these statutes that according to Moses stood till the time that this was written. And so Joseph was a hero, but God is doing all these things. He's allowing all this stuff to happen in chapter 47 to set up what is going to happen in the book of Exodus. He's giving Israel time to grow and, and become large and to become wealthy. And what does it say in Exodus 1? It says, uh, and he didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He didn't, he didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph. And all he saw 
were these Israelites in the land of Goshen who had multiplied. And there was a lot of them, and he was worried. He was scared that they were going to turn against him. And so God is using this process to protect the children of Israel, but he's also using this process to create a wealthy nation that's going to be plundered. Did you know that? This nation of Egypt that has all the money from Canaan and Egypt, has all these cattle that, that they've all been working, all this stuff, they're, they're going to be growing during this time too. And they're going to get plundered. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is just after the 10th plague. What was the 10th plague? Death of the firstborn, right? So just after the 10th plague, all, all the Israelites who put the door, who put the blood on the doorposts, the firstborns were saved. You know, it's interesting that it's the firstborn of, of the people and the livestock. Did you ever notice that? It's the people and the livestock, uh, firstborns. So all, throughout all of Egypt, you're hearing the wailing because of all these people that are dead because of the angel of death that has passed over. And in verse 33, it says, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land of, out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being, being bound up and in their cloaks and their, on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. That's a, that's a fun word. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They literally said, take whatever you want, just get out. Take whatever you want, just get out. The wealthiest nation in the world plundered when Israel leaves. Just think about that. Now think back to what's happening in chapter 47. Joseph has done all these transactions and he's setting everything up for the Pharaoh of the future to be hardened, for the Pharaoh of the future to want what was his, for the Pharaoh of the future to be afraid of these people that have been protected all this time, for the Pharaoh of the future to enslave them so that when God brought them out, anything they wanted went with them. Anything they could carry, gold, silver, clothes, all that stuff. They had the choice pick. You think maybe God knows what he's doing? You think, you think maybe God has a plan? Even in these weird narratives that we just have, you know, a, a bunch of transactions, God's still in control. God is the one giving Joseph the wisdom to make these transactions. God is the one setting all of these things in motion so that in the next 
400 years, all of that becomes his chosen peoples. Isn't that amazing? That God would use this process of famine to create a wealthy nation for himself. Did you ever think about that? That's what he's doing. He's setting everything up for what's going to happen 400 years later. God's an amazing God. We end the passage here with this interaction between Joseph and his father, Jacob. His, Jacob's life is, is coming to an end soon. He's not going to die in this passage, but it's coming to an end soon. And he's, he's worried that he's going to be dying here in Egypt and that he's going to be buried here in Egypt. And so he brings Joseph in and, and we see a familiar uh, process, do we not? Anybody remember where we've seen this interaction before? In Genesis. What? I can't hear you. I can't hear anybody. I just heard a mumble. So this is the servant. Remember Abraham's servant? That he sent to go get Isaac, a wife. We have this weird interaction, right? Where he says, put your hand under my thigh, right? It's just kind of a weird thing. I don't know. It's, just, it's odd. It's odd to me. Like, I don't want people touching me, right? So, I mean, I'll shake your hand, you know, maybe give you a side hug or something like that. But, you know, definitely don't put your hand under my thigh, okay? I don't care what you're swearing to me. Um, it's just weird. It's just weird, okay? But in that time, in that culture, it was apparently a normal thing. It's, this has at least been passed down. Abraham did it with his servant. And now here's Jacob saying to Joseph, I want you to swear. This is a solemn swear, right? And I want you to stick your hand under my thigh. This is, I'm telling you, this is like the most solemn thing that you can do. Don't let me be buried here. Take my body and bury it back with my fathers. Didn't God promise that that was going to happen? Didn't God promise Jacob specifically that he would return to the land of Canaan? And so here we have just one more step in that progression. He's not quite there. We'll get to it. He's not dead yet, but he's almost there. If you look at the end, it says, it says that he, um, oh, I'm in the wrong place. It says that he, he laid his head on his bed. Um, sorry. It says, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So he, he's obviously almost there. You know, we've got, we got blessings in the, next, in the next passage. You know, he's, he's preparing for his death. He knows that it's coming. And he's concerned that the things are not going to work out the way that God promised they were going to work out. And so he makes Joseph swear that he's going to take him. And of course, we know, if you've read ahead, that Joseph does it. He takes his father. Hopefully I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. He's going to be preaching. But um, he obeys. He does it. And what God has promised is fulfilled. God is continually working out his plan. And sometimes he uses the ordinary circumstances and the ordinary responses of human beings to carry out his plan. 
You know, a lot of times when we think about God's plan, we think about these, these really great acts that people do, right? We think about Moses marching in in Exodus and, and we think of the 10 plagues, right? And we think that's God working out his plan, right? Or we think of God, you know, sending Jonah to Nineveh, you know? And of course, you know, we've got the whole incident with the fish and all that stuff, but he finally gets to Nineveh and they repent, right? And that, that's God's plan, Right? We look at everything from Genesis to the New Testament and we can follow and, and see this traces of all these great things that God has done to bring about the exact moment in time when Christ should come. And we look at that and we say, wow. But even though God works in all those amazing ways, he's also working in the mundane, normal things of life. Amen. This was big to them, but I mean, really, we, we look at this passage, it's kind of a mundane, natural process of negotiation, you know. It, there just isn't a whole lot that we would naturally benefit from this, from like, a, and this was just a spiritual, this was a deeply spiritual passage, right? But God uses the mundane things of life to fulfill his plan. He uses the interactions that we have at work to fulfill his plan. He uses the interactions that we have in our families. He uses the interactions that we have with our neighbors. He uses the, the circumstances that are frustrating. Yes, he's using this pandemic for his plan. Amen. We don't know how. They didn't, Joseph didn't know what he was doing to further what was going to happen 400 years from then? Well, 300 some. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't know what was going to happen. He was just doing what he knew he was supposed to do, and God used it for his glory. Do we think about that? You know, it's easy for us, it's easy for me, I should say, it's easy for me to, to look for the amazing things. I want to do a great thing for God. I want to do this awesome thing for God. I want, I want to do something that, that people are going to look at and say, that's amazing. God is awesome. But you know what God wants? Faithfulness. Amen. He just wants us to do what we know we're supposed to do. To do what is right. That's all Joseph was doing. He's just doing what was right. He was doing what was right for Pharaoh. He was doing what was right for his family. He was doing what was right for the people of Egypt. And God used all those actions to fulfill his plan for the people of Israel. He protected them and let them grow to bring them to a point where Joseph is no more remembered that they become slaves to the, bring them to the point where Moses has to come back and free them, obviously through God's power. To bring them to the point where everything that has been collected now gets to travel with the, the children of Israel to the land of kingdom. God is doing all these things. And guess, guess where a lot of that stuff went? Anybody have an idea? There's a really expensive thing that's going to happen in the desert. 
Anybody know? What? Yeah, a couple of different, couple of expensive things, right? One of them is making a calf out of gold, but there's another one that's even more expensive. Anybody know? We have to preach the Exodus apparently. <laughs> what? The tabernacle. I challenge you to go read, go read through Exodus. Read through the, the chapters, chapters on the tabernacle and all the different things that were built, all the different things that were laid, overlaid with gold, all the different uh, fabrics that they used. Oh, just, just read through that. Where do you think all that stuff came from? Egypt. Egypt. You think God knows what he's doing here in Genesis chapter 47? He's setting everything up to fulfill his plan, even to the point of providing what they need to worship him and the glory and the beauty that he deserves. God uses the mundane things of life to fulfill his plan. Yes, he uses the great things. He uses, he uses the evangelist that stands up there, but he also uses the man that goes to work and just shares the gospel. He just uses the mom who teaches her kids how to obey Jesus. He uses the mundane things of life to work out his plan. Don't just look for great things to do for God. Look to be faithful as Joseph was faithful. Father, we thank you that you are not bound by great works because every work that you do is great. And Lord, so often we can look at our lives and, and potentially feel like we are not doing a whole lot because we don't have all these great things to point to. We don't have these major victories or we don't have um, these wonderful uh, soul winning stories or we don't have something that's just knock our socks off, Lord, but you you are still God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are still working even through the things that we just look at as normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill part of life. You work through a simple process of negotiation over years with the people of Egypt through Joseph because you were supernaturally working a plan that no one knew about but that would result in your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not get caught up in, in seeking our own glory, but that we would simply be faithful to do what you have called us to do and realize that you are glorified in that. May you be glorified in our lives today and in the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.